Welcome to Dig It. This is Edge with my co-host, Corey Lynn of Corey's Digs. How are you doing, Corey? I'm doing pretty good today. I actually feel a little bit more on my game. I've been in massive fatigue and brain fog dealing with some issues with that. But today I was able to like use my brain a little bit. So I feel good. I'm anxious to uh, go through some of the stuff that we're going to cover today. Nice. Yeah, we got several things to cover. I hope we get through it all. Uh, I know that you wanted to do a quick announcement on a solution series episode that you have coming out. So interested to hear about that. Plus, we're going to talk about an Illinois gun law being shot down, pun intended. Uh, New York bans gas stoves for new homes. Yay. Um, Then we also have the developments in AI this week, plus some World Economic Forum stats that you wanted to go over, as well as bank failures happening this week and a loss of confidence in the system. And finally, the World Bank picks a new leader to push digital ID, which I know that we'll both have plenty to say about on that one. Oh, we have plenty to say about all of this. We got a packed show today. Yeah, so why don't we just jump right into it? So you had an announcement on your solution series for this week? Yeah, so today, well, Friday, we record Thursdays. Uh, Friday is the preview, and then next Tuesday it will release, and it is a journey through self-empowerment, RVing, EMF protections, and manifesting with Fiona Price. And it's a fantastic episode. It's inspiring and motivational and some really good tips and tools in there. So that's going to be a good one coming out. Nice. So check that out, guys, on Corey's Digs and hit the Solution Series tab. So what else are we ready to get into? Let's see what's Let's first up. Let's get into this awesome uh, judge that shot down the, if everyone remembers, this was a big deal because it's insane what they were going for. So this was in Illinois back in January, and they were trying to pass, well, the Illinois legislator passed the Protect Illinois Communities Act, and they called it PICA, which banned more than 190. Do you remember seeing that list? It was insane. Uh, Commonly owned arms by mislabeling them assault weapons and banned commonly owned magazines by mislabeling them large capacity. So we heard a whole lot. You remember seeing across all of a sudden people started circulating maps on all the different counties in Illinois where the sheriffs were like, hell no, we're not going to uh, enforce that. That's totally unconstitutional. And yes, he's talking about it. And so sure enough, they um, it was an ILA backed lawsuit, uh, partly financed by the, you know, by the NRA. So they filed the lawsuit right away, uh, challenging Pike onto the Second Amendment. And so this just happened on April 28th. The federal court issued an order blocking Pike from taking effect, holding that it likely violated the Second Amendment. <clears throat> what I like about this is what the judge had to say. He said, there is no, I'm saying he, but is it a he? Let me see. Did they even mention uh you got to get his pronouns correct. Right? <laughs> All right? We'll just call him a he, she. How's that? So <laughs> the judge, the judge, there you go, said there is no evidence as to how PICA will actually help Illinois communities. It is also not lost on this court that the 
Illinois Sheriff's Association and some Illinois state's attorneys believe PICA unconstitutional and cannot, in good conscience, enforce the law as written and honor their sworn oath to uphold the Constitution. So, I mean, this is something that everyone's been talking about for quite some time now, trying to, you know, work with their local sheriffs to see the power they truly have. And so God bless all them for standing up to this. So the court continued, it does not appear that the legislator considered an individual's right under the Second Amendment, nor Supreme Court precedent. Moreover, PICA did not just regulate the rights of the people to defend themselves, it restricted that right, and in some cases completely obliterated that right by criminalizing the purchase and the sale of more than 190 arms. The court was even more critical of the arguments that the state put forward in defense of PICA. The state argued that PICA was constitutional because the arms and magazines that it banned did not exist in 1791 when the constitution was ratified. The court called that argument bordering on the frivolous. The state also attempted to argue that magazines were not arms. The court squarely rejected that argument, declaring that it was not even a close call because the state's own expert incorporates magazine capacity into his definition of a firearm. And the court found that when it comes to the ban, when it comes to the banned features that make the firearm a so-called assault weapon, the defensive application is obvious, as is the public safety advantage in preventing stray shots. So the court ultimately stayed the law from taking effect during the pendency of the litigation. So this will be, um, this was, let's see, filed, da, 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 da. Yeah, so that's that's a huge win and uh, should have been, you know, a no-brainer and shouldn't have even had to have gone this far, but uh, it, it was good to see that news come out. Excellent. I mean, this is going to set a great precedent for all the other type of crap. You know that they're not going to stop with trying to take away firearms. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like after every shooting, of course, that's exactly what they try to do. And I don't want to insinuate that maybe some of these incidents that occur are intended or designed specifically right. for that. But... <laughs> definitely not letting a crisis go to waste and right. uh trying to push legislation this is awesome to see and could well, set some great precedent if other states have to do the same thing and it's impressive to see so many sheriffs come forward in the state of illinois so i mean if that can be done in a in a blue state uh imagine what could be done elsewhere so so then we go over to a little bit of bad news now over in new york another fine state they passed the first in nation ban on gas stoves in new homes and apartments, but it's more than just that. So if everyone remembers, uh, this just happened. When was it like within the last couple of months, all of a sudden that stupid report that was going around that, um, went totally viral and it was by edge. The name's escaping me. I literally reported on the organization years ago when I was doing the uh, 10 islands project. And now it's, it's escaping me. Um, the organization that did that report that went so viral, but I, don't, anyway. it, it, I think it was like a federal agency, one of, you know, a Biden regime, federal agency that but was spearheading were, this cause, right? But like, they were not well. So according to wall street journal, um, and I do remember hearing this back, 
back when this was going on. Biden said he actually did not support a ban on gas stoves, but it was the organization who actually did the report for them. Um, it's escaping me. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll click before the end of this. So at any rate, in New York, they are set to become the first state in the U.S. to ban gas stoves in new homes and apartments. And why is this a big deal? Well, for one, if we go all electric like they would so love, it's much easier to turn that off and control it. It's also more expensive than gas. So that's not good. So they basically passed a bill late Tuesday that prohibits natural gas and other fossil fuel hookups in new residential buildings and some new commercial buildings. Uh, Governor Kathy Hochul, Democrat, is expected to approve the measure, which was included in the state's budget. This measure aims to help the state meet targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It would prohibit other gas-powered appliances. I actually reread that three times because at first I thought it said it wouldn't, but it's saying it would prohibit other gas-powered appliances such as water heaters, furnaces, and clothes dryers in new residential buildings in addition to banning gas stoves in new homes. Uh, the measure would go into, I'm just kind of skipping around, the measure would go into effect in 2026 for buildings seven stories and under, and in 2029 for taller buildings, which of course isn't soon enough for some of these climate folks. So the legislation doesn't cover gas-powered appliances in existing homes and commercial spaces. New commercial buildings must comply, including office buildings, but some properties were granted exceptions to the ban, such as commercial kitchens, hospitals, crematoriums, laboratories, and laundromats. So they're saying, so supporters say that New York ban on new natural gas hookups would help the state meet its goals under their Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which was passed in 2019. And uh, let's see. So is, is this the organization that you were talking about? U.S. Consumers Product Safety Commission? Um, no. That was responsible no. for the big, you know, pushback that we saw a few months back when this whole came at, thing came out that they were trying to ban gas stoves. Well, that may be that may be it, but they would they contract it was either they contracted out to have this report put together for them or there was uh an additional report in play. I could swear we talked about this a couple months ago, but I'm a little brain fried these days. Uh, <laughs> okay, so moving on. It'll come to me. Anyway, I did not know this. So there's more than 20 states have laws that forbid cities from enacting their own bans. Remember when um, California, I think they were actually, so they mentioned this in this article, but I think they were the first to try this. So in Berkeley, California, where the Ninth Circuit in April struck down their gas ban they were attempting to do. Do you remember that? uh yeah i think, I think we so. talked about that back then but anyways so so yeah so new york is uh pushing hard on all this and you know uh, just it's always going to be new york and california that spearhead this kind of crap where they you know they're like they're the beta test and you know, know and then we'll roll it out you know trickle it out to other areas right right oh yeah, but how much of a leap is it when they're starting to you know ban uh, gas appliances, how much of a leap is it then to ban or restrict gas for heating your homes, right? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, like, like I'm sorry, you've used up your your allotment this this month for right. uh, heating your home. You're going to have to cut back, and we saw that happen in Europe. And we're just going to crank your thermostat down. <laughs> mm-hmm. 55 degrees. <laughs> With all of our smart meters, we can just go ahead and, you know, centralize all of Everything's that. Everything's going to be run on electric. It's so much easier to control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you go. And speaking of about everything being smart devices, uh, got a big topic to get into today about artificial intelligence. A lot of news coming out this week um, to go over. So um, the godfather of AI, as he's called, mm-hmm. Jeffrey Hinton, has left Google this week. And his whole purpose for leaving Google was so that he could be free to speak about the dangers of AI and this unfolding AI arms race. So Mm. Hinton is one of the pioneers of AI. He actually helped Google AI become the giant that it is today. So he's actually speaking out now uh, about the AI that he helped to create. Okay, so, but he's Mm. saying in this interview, um, talking about how AI is advancing so quickly and exponentially growing, um, he said in this interview, Quote, look at how it, it was five years ago and how it is now. Take the difference and propagate it forwards. That's scary. So he's just talking about how quickly advancements are happening. And Hinton is warning about the AI arms race between AI giants like OpenAI and Microsoft, Google, Amazon. And so here's the obvious danger when we're talking about an AI arms race without any kind of safety measures or regulation in place. Um, these constraints, these safety measures to constrain AI are just going to go completely ignored. Uh, corners are going to be cut. And as we've talked about in recent podcasts, uh, we know these big players like Google Um, are headed by people, say, like Larry Page and Ray Kurzweil, who actually don't care about AI safety and are working towards the goal of creating really essentially a super AI god. Okay, and this is, you know, referring to the conversation that Elon Musk had with Tucker Carlson in a recent interview of conversations that he had had with Google's Larry Page, and then, of course, Ray Kurzweil being one of the top transhumanists um, is just all in on that on that sort of a thing. But, oh, yeah. yeah, so Hinton is just the latest to speak out about the dangers of AI uh, because, you know, thousands, literally thousands of people have been calling for um, a moratorium on AI, signing an open letter, uh, including industry leaders like Elon Musk. But so far, we have you know twenty-seven thousand or more um, signatures to this open letter, and I'm just going to read a bit about it. Um, it says AI systems with human competitive intelligence can pose profound risks to society and humanity, as shown by extensive research and acknowledged by top AI labs. It goes on to say, should we automate away all the jobs, including the fulfilling ones? Should we develop non-human minds that might eventually outnumber, outsmart, obsolete, and replace us? 
should we risk the uh, loss of control of our civilization? And I think these are the essential questions that nobody's actually answering. Uh, they're all too busy in this AI race. And of course, Bill Gates disagrees with this open letter, thinking that, oh, you know, it, it's it, putting a pause on AI isn't really going to do anything. So it's full steam ahead over at GPT-4 and Microsoft. But um, another thing that piece that came out this week comes also from Google this time over at DeepMind. So DeepMind's CEO um, acknowledged this week the ex exponential advancements in AI leading towards human-like artificial general intelligence. And he said that the progress in, in the last few years has been pretty incredible. I don't see any reason why that progress is going to slow down. I think it may even accelerate. So I think we could be just a few years, maybe within a decade. And I would argue that we're already seeing exponential acceleration. Think about in just the last few months, uh, the developments in chat GPT and GPT-4. I mean, it's moving so rapidly. It and is. And Italy just uh, banned chat GPT. They did. And then I just looked it up yesterday. That, so they lifted that ban after chat oh. GPT placed certain... Uh, control measures and that Italy required. Okay. Um, yeah. So, but again, things are moving so rapidly that yeah. you almost have to check on updates daily um, with things that are uh, happening in, in the space of, of AI. Right. But, you know, I agree with, you know, Jeffrey Henton, as he pointed out that human level AGI will be, I think it'll be soon, sooner than later because it's really exponentially uh, increasing and advancing, right? And I think that it may have actually happened already behind closed doors, say, inside a place like Google. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, they've had all this stuff ready to rock and roll, and they've got it all timed out as to when they wanted to introduce everything, and they're just flooding the heck out of it. And we're in this test cycle now, and they're going to all come out and talk as though safety is their first concern, like yep. in the in the WEF summit, which CNN's hosting on the whole uh, AI section that I, I couldn't get myself to get through. I, I listened <laughs> to 20 minutes of it, and you've got, I can't even think of the names now, but you had like five people on the panel, of course, Microsoft and you know, the, the whole first 20 minutes was how they're all concerned about the safety and we got to make sure we do this right. And it's rolling out really fast. And so, yeah. And I'll talk more about that when you're done on their whole, because the summit was about the uh, future of jobs report 2023 and like the whole growth. Right. So, right. Yeah. Summit 2023. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to get into that for sure. But this acceleration in AI development, it comes without solving the ethical issues, the potential dangers that AI poses. And just last month, um, Harv, uh, Stanford uh, put out their, um, they published their 2023 AI report where they poll industry leaders. And so these industry leaders were surveyed. And the missed headline here is that 36% believe that AI could cause a nuclear level catastrophe. So, mm -hmm. yeah. 
And, and these are the people who are just ahead of the bell curve. Now, I want you to think for a minute about all of the medical professionals who went along with the COVID mRNA injection. Right. And it was the vast majority of them. Maybe only 30% or less were right. sounding the alarm about how dangerous this experimental gene therapy was. And they were right. So we've learned through this process over the past three years to listen to the voices of dissent, that 30%, who are just ahead of the curve. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. and then we have um, open AI uh, researcher who worked for uh, open AI and on chat GPT for years, uh, just recently saying that, um, there's a 10 to 20% chance um, of an AI takeover ending up with many or most humans dead. <laughs> and fantastic. And a 50% chance of catastrophe shortly after we have human level AI. And so I think that we need to take the, these people seriously um, yeah. with these kinds of warnings. Now, as you said, they're going to fake it and act like they care about AI safety at first, right? So the White House has called... Well, they, well, they give their false warnings to let mm -hmm. you know what their intention is to roll out. Exactly. So the White House called a meeting this week with top execs from Google, Microsoft, and OpenAI and Anthropic to c discuss, quote, AI safety as if they actually care about AI safety. I think that this huh. is actually a ploy... Um, I think under the guise of any kind of regulation for AI for, quote, public safety, this regime, regime would just seek to use that as a guise to really centralize control of AI. What do you think on that? Well, yeah, everything is safety, saving lives and convenience. That, you know, that, that's how they roll out everything. And that's never the case. It's, it's typically the opposite. Yeah, I just don't know which would be worse, a super AI under the control of big tech or a super yeah. AI under the control of the Pentagon. But either way, <laughs> I believe, you know, that spells disaster for the public. And I don't what I don't see is really any intention yeah, of slowing AI same, down. Isn't yeah. it pretty much one in the same edge? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But so in the near term, this is my last thing before we roll into your World Economic Forum piece that you wanted to break down. In the near term, I think that we need to expect a continue to continue to see um, AI taking over jobs. Just this week, um, IBM CEO announced the suspension of hiring for jobs that AI could do, such as human resources and office jobs, and that's going to wipe out 30% of their workforce or 7,800 jobs. And no doubt, um, other companies are going to follow suit. Yeah, well, so it's interesting, because when you told me you, you wanted to talk about the AI, I was doing a little digging, and then I came across the World Economic Forum's uh, summit that was going on, which I could barely stand. So I was looking at the future of jobs report, which is, you know, primarily what this was about was the growth of the future and whatnot. And so I just highlighted some points. I'm not going to go through, I'm just going to give some cliff notes from this report because there's a lot of statistics. So keep in mind, this is what they are 
suggesting and reporting in their studies. And what this study is based on, they said, so this is the fourth edition of the survey, which has the widest coverage thus far by topic, geography, and sector. So the Future of Jobs survey brings together the perspective of 803 companies collectively employing more than 11.3 million workers across 27 industry clusters and 45 economies from all world regions. So with that in mind, they answered all of these, uh, sorry if you can hear all the hammering going on in the background, it's pretty loud over here. Uh, no, it, it's fine, it's not bad. Okay, so, so I'm just gonna read some of these stats off that I find interesting because this is what they are projecting is going to be rolling out over the next five years, which includes very much of AI and technology as well as their wonderful ESG and their other crap. So. Over 85% of organizations surveyed identify increased adoption of new and frontier technologies and broadening digital access as the trends most likely to drive transformation in their organization. Broader application of environmental, social, and governance, ESGs, standards within their organizations will also have a significant impact. No shocker there. Uh, going down further within technology adoption, big data, cloud computing, and AI feature highly on likelihood of adoption. So they're saying that more than 75% of companies are looking to adopt these technologies in the next five years. The data also shows the impact of the digitalization of commerce and trade. Digital platforms and apps are the technologies most likely to be adopted by the organization surveyed with 86% of companies expecting to incorporate them into their operation in the next five years. E-commerce and digital trade are expected to be adopted by 75% of businesses. The second ranked technology encompasses education and workforce technologies with 81% of companies looking to adopt these technologies by 2027. The adoption of robots, power storage technology and distributed ledger technologies surprisingly rank lower on the list. So I thought that was a little interesting. So agriculture technologies, digital platforms and apps, e-commerce and digital trade and AI are all expected to result in significant labor market disruption with substantial proportions of companies forecasting job displacement in these organizations offset by job growth elsewhere to result in a net positive, so they say. All but two technologies are expected to be net job creators in the next five years. Humanoid robots and non-humanoid robots. <laughs> mm. Okay. Isn't the future exciting? It is, <laughs> I tell ya. Then we have artificial intelligence, a key driver of potential algorithmic displacement is expected to be adopted by nearly 75% of surveyed companies and is expected to lead to high churn with 50% of organizations expecting it to create job growth and 25% expecting it to create job losses. Then we move into the majority of the fastest growing roles are technology related roles. AI and machine learning specialists top the list of fast growing jobs, followed by sustainability specialists, oh, good grief. intelligence analysts, and information security analysts. 
I want to pause you real quick right there because it's so funny that you, that they say this because I was just reading something about how these like so-called sustainability specialists, okay, have been getting laid off left and right from companies because that's just really more of a luxury. It's kind of like whitewashing your reputation when you're when business is good and business is booming, they can hire all of these like ESG specialists and crap like that. But then when times are hard, which they are now for every, pretty much every business, they're, right. they're the first ones that get laid off because everybody knows it's a bullshit job to begin with. Right. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So we got renewable energy engineers and solar energy installation and system engineers are relatively fast growing roles as economies shift towards renewable energy. We've got jobs for agricultural professionals, especially agricultural equipment operators, are expected to see an increase of around 30%. Found that interesting, leading to an additional 3 million jobs. What are they up to there? Uh, surveyed organizations predict 26 million fewer jobs by 2027 in record keeping and administrative roles which you were just kind of talking about, uh, including cashiers and ticket clerks, data entry, accounting, bookkeeping, and payroll clerks, and administrative and executive secretaries, driven mainly by digitalization and automation. Okay, moving down to, I only have a few more to go. Employers estimate that 44% of workers' skills will be disrupted in the next five years. I found this one interesting, too, and it just screams social-emotional learning, the whole report I did on that. Cognitive skills are reported to be growing in importance most quickly, reflecting the increasing importance of complex problem-solving in the workplace. Surveyed businesses report creative thinking to be growing in importance slightly more rapidly than analytical thinking. Technology literacy is the third fastest growing core skill. Self-efficacy skills rank above working with others in the rate of increase in importance of skills reported by businesses. The socio-emotional attitudes, which businesses consider to be growing in importance most quickly, are curiosity and lifelong learning. Hello, keywords from social-emotional learning. Resilience flexibility and agility and motivation and self-awareness, as long as that self-awareness has been programmed into you. Uh, systems thinking, AI and big data, talent management and service orientation and customer service complete the top 10 growing skills. So that's what they're looking to for what they would like to see in the future. And then we have six in 10 workers will require training before 2027. Training workers to utilize AI and big data ranks third among company skills training priorities in the next five years and will be prioritized by 42% of these companies. Employers also plan to focus on developing worker skills in leadership and social influence, 40% of companies. Resilience, flexibility and agility at 32% and curiosity and lifelong learning at 30%. So hence, there's the digital workforce that I talked about in my nine part series in the social emotional learning, because it's from pre-K to adulthood. I mean, this, this is what they're training and programming everyone toward. Re-education camps from cradle to yes. grave, basically. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> and the final one I want to point out is all the way at the end, a majority of companies will prioritize women at 79%, youth under 25 at 68%, and those with disabilities at 51% as part of their DEI programs. A minority will prioritize those from a disadvantaged religious, ethnic, or racial background at 39%, workers over age 55 at 36%, those who identify as LGBTQI at 35%, and those from a low-income background at 33%. So if you are a white dude, you're pretty much screwed. Absolutely. I was just going to say that. We are going to prioritize literally every group except for straight white (laughs) males. Exactly. Yeah. How racist. It's so frustrating to see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if anyone wants to check, they have all their little clips up from the summit that just uh, was on the second and third. I think it was the second and third where they get into some of this stuff in more detail and the AI and, and other areas, you can go into WEF. I'm sure you'll find it right on their homepage. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they're really proud of all the crap that they put out. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, meanwhile, we should get into what's going on with the banks lately. Oh yeah. Definitely. Instead of all this pie in the sky crap that the world economic forum wants to put out, let's, let's bring it down to reality. Okay. What are they (laughs) doing with the banks? All right. So this week we saw yet another bank failure. This time it was First Republic Bank. So the Mm. FDIC negotiated for JP Morgan Chase to take over First Republic. Of course. And this has caused another wave of lack of confidence in the banks, even though Jamie Dimon over at JP Morgan Chase wants to assure everybody that everything's fine. Everything's fine. Nothing to see here. Just move all your money out of the small banks into the big banks and you'll be safe. Mm -hmm. That's what they keep telling people to do. But consumers and investors are thinking, we haven't seen the last of the bank collapses this year. And it's no surprise, of course, that JP Morgan Chase is the one selected to take over First Republic, we're watching the consolidation of all mm-hmm. these smaller banks into the the mega banks. And what's J.P. Morgan going to do? Well, exactly the same crap they've been doing, which is cancel and debank political enemies of this regime. We're mm. seeing how these bank this banking system is being consolidated so that this regime can weaponize the big banks that survive. And just this week, um, 19 attorneys generals from Republican states asserted that J.P. Morgan Chase, the largest financial institution, debanked religious and conservative organizations. Are you surprised at all by that? No, absolutely not. Nope. So they're going to continue that. And I think that's part of the plan is that they're centralizing control of the banking system so that they can institute their social credit system whereby they can debank people who say the wrong things on social media, who vote the wrong ways, who are part of certain uh, groups, that Christian groups, conservative groups, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we saw all this way back, even with the freedom truckers that, you know, were debanked in Canada, right? Right. All right. So this is the direction that it's obviously going with their little 
uh, scheme here, but the latest collapse um, have, um, with the latest co collapse, the bank stocks are really tumbling and we're seeing yet another California bank. This is PacWest is on the brink of collapse. So mm. the news of PacWest, that's pretty kind of funny, actually, the timing. The news of PacWest was coming out pretty much just around the same time as the Fed Chairman Powell um, was giving a speech this week uh, where he lied on camera saying that the system was, quote, sound and resilient. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. You got to love that, right? So, like, oh, yeah. The, the, you have the the juxtaposition of you know the the fake news and the reality happening simultaneously. Just as they're saying everything is sound and resilient, nothing to see here. PacWest is on the verge of collapse. Just, just like just like the constant tweet stream all day long under Biden's Twitter account on how wonderful the U.S. is and how many jobs we're creating and how there's no inflation and we're just kicking butt. <laughs> Right, right. Which yeah. it's all absolutely so ridiculous. Um, I don't think that anybody's actually buying into it, and the markets are clearly no. showing that. Um, the truth and the reality is that the um, so far the 2023 banking collapse is actually worse than the 2008 collapse. So it's only been three banks in 2023 so far, but these are three really big banks and the assets are larger from the three big banks than the 25 smaller banks that collapsed in 2008. So if you actually look at the numbers on their, their assets in 2008, um, the failures totaled about $373 billion, while the 2023 failures totaled so far $548 billion in assets. Wow. So we are just well beyond the 2008 uh, bank collapse situation. And wow. yeah, and consumer confidence is very low and the Fed is really just gaslighting us at this point because I think they're legitimately terrified of more bank runs. So there's about 600 billion in unrealized losses, right? So 600 billion in unrealized losses in all the banks right now. And there's mm. simply absolutely no way that they could cover all the withdrawals if everyone just went and took out their money, right? Right. So, I mean, my suggestion, I guess, to everybody, I don't want to give financial advice, but my suggestion to people is just pretty simple. In these extremely vol volatile times is, number one, diversify. Make sure yep. you don't have all your eggs in one basket. And right. so you're not devastated if something happens. But also trust your instincts. All right. Right now, it's really important we trust our instincts and stop listening to these so-called authorities. Always. Right. Because the Fed and the banks are going to continue to gaslight us because they don't want to create a panic. So definitely don't trust anyone in a position of authority who has a vested interest in making sure the public remains in the dark about how fragile the banking system is right now. Right. Which which just brings us right to the World Bank, which ties into all of this as well, because while we're going through all of this, we're we're just doling out billions over to Ukraine. And well, who who handles the transfer of many of those funds hmm, hmm. Bank. and who has uh immunity and privileges 
So is it any wonder who's that never going to be audited terribly traceable as to where the money's going from the US to the Ukraine, despite them saying, Oh, we keep track of everything. Sure. Okay, World Bank. Right. It just came out recently with another Seymour Hirsch bombshell article about how at least $400 billion has been scammed off the top going to Ukraine. Um, that's just the bare minimum of what they've been stealing from. Uh, $400 million, I think, is what it was, not $400 billion. $400 yeah. million skimmed off the top of the money that we've sent to them. I'm sure that's just a fraction of the shit they've stole from us and all the stuff that's ending up on the black market. But yeah, we know that um, that it's all a scam. It's all money laundering. It's all a big boondoggle. Um, yeah. And World Bank's definitely in on it. But this week, the news is that the Biden regime's pick to head the World Bank has been chosen. He's the former CEO of MasterCard. And of course, this article by Politico wants to take the angle that he is going to help the World Bank combat climate change. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Of course. And I, I have no doubt. <laughs> I have no doubt because I've covered MasterCard pretty extensively. And I know you, you picked up on it in uh, one or two of your reports as well. Yeah, yeah. But they're not talking about how this guy and MasterCard have been really at the forefront of pushing oh, digital yeah. ID, cashless societies, CBDC, all that good stuff. So oh, MasterCard's yeah. digital ID is being implemented in Australia, Brasilia, and in the UK. Um, and this is really just a perfect match for the World Bank, isn't it? Because the World Bank has their ID 4D agenda mm -hmm. right yep. and their plan to get everyone connected via digital id right oh yeah and i know that there were some points you wanted to make you pulled up some stuff that we had uh talked about in previous articles um and this one right here being your report on blockchain blockchain uh the global landscape on vaccine id passports and you did of course talk about mastercard in there so you want to get into that Uh-oh, you're, you're muted. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, <okay>. there's, <laughs> there's a couple other ones I want to mention in addition to that. Uh, gosh, I wonder how long I've been muted because I've been commenting when you've been talking. So, sorry, I was trying to mute out the hammers in the background. I think they might officially be done now. So yeah, in my laundering with immunity, uh, in part two, I actually, where I get more into the organization of American states and their role in all of this, um, the Inter-American Development Bank, which is connected with them, joined the Better Than Cash Alliance, which of course is a partnership between governments, companies, and international organizations such as Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, USAID, Ford, City MasterCard Foundation. And that was to basically convince the world that digital financial inclusion to achieve their sustainable development goal is safer and more transparent than cash. So that uh, that's one area that they've been involved in. Uh, they also have uh, the Trust for the Americas, which that's a whole other area there that uh, many nefarious characters, including MasterCard, have uh, invested into. And 
I know that you also included them in your report on the rise and risks of central bank digital currency. If you want to mention that before I go into the uh, digital ID financial end of this, because that's a little bit longer. Yeah, because in the um, report that I did, just breaking down the status of CBDCs all over the world, all the different various projects going on, and there are hundreds and hundreds of them, MasterCard is definitely in that arena. So in September 2020, MasterCard announced the launch of their CBDC testing platform for central banks to simulate the issuance, distribution, and exchange of CBTs between banks, financial service providers, and consumers. And then in January of 2022, Visa joined MasterCard in offering central banks a platform to test CBDCs and Visa products. So more projects are you know, being developed all the time, and MasterCard is heavily involved in both the CBDC and digital ID arena. Yes, indeed they are. They also gave 5.3 million to Gavi and Kovacs to push the COVID jobs. So in my, uh, in my book, in, uh, let's see, part three, part three, part four, there's, there's two different reports here. So in one, the MasterCard was an independent expert involved in planning the UN's roadmap for digital cooperation report in 2020. Uh, which I won't get into all the cliff notes on that, but that's that's in, uh, I think that's in part three. Or no, yeah, that's in part three as well. And that has to do with the digital enslavement system. And also they wanted to build content governance frameworks. One can only imagine. So in this one, we have in 2016, scroll up a hair edge, yeah. So this, no, 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 back down. You're good. So the World Economic Forum, which Deloitte always puts these white papers together in August, 2016, they put together this report um, where they of course brought in all these experts called a blueprint for digital identity, the role of financial institutions in building the digital identity. And they this was a multi-stakeholder workshop and interviews with industry experts, which of course, you know, it's the usual characters. So there you go with your JP Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, Bill and Melinda Gates. You got Barclays, Visa, MasterCard. I mean, on and on it goes. So they've been very involved with this, like you said, you know, from, since the beginning. Uh, in fact, Visa and MasterCard, yeah, they were very early on rolling out pilot programs on all of this. So just some of the cliff notes from that white paper, and this is using their words, their language, not mine. They say they wanted, what it was about, because I, I remember just my jaw dropping when I was reading this, is they want financial institutions to push the digital identity systems. So the banks, all of them, and, and you know, I couldn't cover the whole thing, so I tried to just do some cliff notes, but the incentives and just all of it was just so dirty. So the, the goal is financial institutions could derive substantial benefit from investing in the development of digital identity solutions, promising them new revenue opportunities and transformational future state opportunities. So they want them to offer these new products or services based on increased knowledge of customers 
They want disruption of the credit bureau model and assisting with decisions and blurring the lines between financial and non-financial advisory. Those are their words. They want uh, to become the trusted, you know, banks, financial institutions, to become the trusted identity provider of the public sector, assisting with social services and civic requirements such as tax filing. Uh, legal and regulatory acceptance for using third-party verified information, attribute exchange and external use of user information. Uh, let's see, regulators will have increased access to up-to-date information, distributed ledger technology combined with encryption and cloud storage allows information to be held and transferred point to point in a dispersed immutable network. Biometrics, including fingerprints, retina scanning, heartbeat waveform, and facial recognition based on mobile devices have potential to provide greater convenience and security and are being integrated into many anti-fraud controls. Those are their words. They want the, in the identity collection process, this is what they describe, age, height, date of birth, fingerprints, health records. Now, why would you need health records? Preferences and behaviors, telephone metadata, national identifier number, telephone number, email address, for starters. Right. That's just the beginning. For starters. Yeah. The uh, governance body provides oversight for the system and owns the operating standards and requirements. Blockchain or distributed ledger technology has the potential in identity applications as an information storage and transfer mechanism with different archetypes. And they talk about how the distributed ledger could be applied as a distributed protocol, giving users the ability to store their identity attestations on a ledger and expose them to different RPs or in a centralized system where the ledger would be owned by a single entity that would provide a consolidated view of the user's attestations for use in transactions, but would not reveal the nature of the credentials. Sure. Mm, who should that be? Should who this, should the centralized system be? World Bank? <laughs> right. Hmm. Then we have, uh, they say that, you know, since the financial institutions have a large number of users, they have a key role to play in ensuring that identity systems are a tool to increase financial inclusion and be a catalyst in driving system adoption and uptake. Then we've got uh, new capabilities for financial institutions via digital identities would include digital identity attributes tied to payment tokens, digital tax filing, and tracking total asset, oh boy, rehypothecation, am I saying that right? You did it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so terrible at pronouncing things. Uh, in collaboration with governments, taxes could be automatically completed and filings generated by customers' chosen financial institution using their complete knowledge of customers' financial holdings, assets, income, and personal circumstances. Doesn't that just sound wonderful? Mm, no, not really. So, so the fact that they now take the CEO of MasterCard and say... We now want you to lead the World Bank, who already, you know, has immunities and privileges and can funnel money wherever it wants with no accountability or transparency, um, who's been deeply embedded in this agenda. Right. Is, is rather, you know, alarming. 
Yeah, it takes a lot to shock people these days because it's like every day <laughs> there's a new right, thing. right. But yeah, I think that what we try to do is focus on the really important stuff, right? Like this this agenda to push us all towards a digital ID and a full control system. And definitely the World Bank is spearheading that. They are one they're at the forefront of that. kind of action and obviously MasterCard as well. Um, Right. many, many other players, but um, definitely need to focus on these key ideas uh, of, you know, areas where they're trying to instill this control grid over us and be aware of it and do things that we can to stop it. Right. Right. Yeah, Yeah. and it, we've talked about this many times. It, it's, you know, I think on the local level, it's, you know, doing things to, on the personal level as well to really protect yourself against this by really um, creating many layers to um, detach yourself from that kind of control grid, right? And uh, not being so dependent on it. I know that uh, in this digital age, we all are um, to some extent, Um, or another uh, attached to it. But um, I think that at some point, and this happened like with COVID and with the, the mRNA jabs, we, we knew, we foresaw ahead of time that there were going to be mandates, so that people would be losing their jobs, people would be losing the, uh, their uh, ability to go to concerts and things like that. But, um, and we saw people cave, cave to that, Um, and, and so now it's time to really um, foresee where the, all of this is going and say, you know, where am I willing to take a stand personally and say no, right? Like, how far am I willing to go as far as sacrificing conveniences for freedom? Uh, Right, I and think also, it's a... the, sorry, but this is their story. This is what they would like to see. This is what they're planning on doing. This is their dreamy future. This isn't ours. This isn't most of the population, uh, probably all of the population for that matter. Uh, so we need to think differently. We need to visualize differently. We need to collaborate. We need to say no and not comply. Um, not buy their fancy gadgets and tech and um, pass legislation yeah, don't. on the local level on state and local Oh, yeah. levels for to protect your cash to protect uh and acknowledge and reaffirm gold and silver as as tender uh to set up depositories i mean there's a whole number of things that we could do uh right now to fight the system that they're trying to put in place Right. Hundred percent. all right I think that about sums it up. So, I don't know how we squeezed that in an hour, <laughs> like a minute almost. yeah, <laughs> I'm patting <laughs> myself on the back. Little, little, little pat on the Good back job. right now. Good job. All right, all right, guys. Thanks for sticking with us. Please be sure to share this podcast. We're on Bitshoot, Foxhole, Gab TV, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Pilled. Rumble, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, no longer on YouTube. So please be sure to subscribe to our other platforms. And we'll see you right, back right, right here on Dig It.